Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and you may recall that in our last episode, The Legacy, Irene Cole, whom Randy Burnside referred to as a mousy little thing, blossomed into an assertive, glamorous woman who learned how to use her wealth to gain leverage. Do you remember what the exchange is when Randy first sees Irene after her transformation? Irene, you, you look wonderful. Thank you. Dear, would you please get my stove? And do you think that'll be warm enough, sweetheart? Please, do me a favor. Wear your coat. All right, darling. So what is this stole they're talking about? What kind of coat does her husband Howard come back with? Why, mink, of course. Now, we live in a time when wearing fur is frowned upon. So even while fur coats are sold, you have pushback along the lines of this from HumaneSociety.org. On fur factory farms around the world, millions of rabbits, foxes, mink, and other wild animals spend their entire lives in cramped cages, deprived of the ability to engage in natural behaviors, only to be crudely gassed or electrocuted at the end. In the wild, animals are caught in crippling leg hold traps for days without food or water. These archaic traps are indiscriminate, often maiming and killing non-target animals like threatened species and even pets. All of this in the name of fashion. With your support, we are leading the fight to pass laws and secure corporate commitments on this critical issue. Together, we can create a fur-free future. So that may be our future, but what about 65 years in the past? Well, back then, mink was considered a symbol of status, glamour, and success, none of which was considered to be objectionable. And there are views of women in this episode, even down to the billing for the teleplay, that I think were not intended to be objectionable, but which we find objectionable today. But there is also commentary here on the role of women in a male-dominated society that I think is intentional. More on this a little bit later. For now, here's Hitch. He is behind what appears to be prison bars, and he has a small saw that he is using to cut a notch into one of the bars. And he begins by quoting Richard Lovelace. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage, but they help. They help. Actually, this is my doctor's idea. When he says strict diet, he means strict diet. The camera pulls back to show a sign on the cage door that says, Do not feed. The saw came in the traditional way, inside a cake. Have you ever had a piece of calorieless cake? I should have eaten the saw and used the cake to bludgeon my way out. However, I do not want to concern you with my petty problems, but with those of Paula Hudson. Paula was one of those persons who had never spent a day in jail or even been given a parking ticket. Then one day she found herself at the wrong end of the finger of suspicion. You will see Paula's story in a moment. It is called Mink, from the fur of the same name. So here's Mink. First broadcast on June 3rd, 1956 starring Ruth Hussey. Teleplay by Gwen Bagney and Erwin Gilgood. And directed by Robert Stevenson. 
This is the sixth of seven episodes directed by Robert Stevenson after Don't Come Back Alive, The Long Shot, The Derelicts, and So Died Ryabashinska, and There Was an Old Woman. You may recall that it is at about this time that Robert Stevenson begins an association with Walt Disney that takes up pretty much the rest of his career, so that his seventh and last episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents isn't until episode 13 of season five, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. And this is the second and last teleplay by Gwen Bagney and Erwin Gilgood after episode 30, Never Again, which was based on a story by Adela Rogers St. John's. This time there's no listing for a story that this is based on, so I think we can assume that this is an original teleplay. As we begin, we hear the sound of a door latch opening before the lights come up to show us Paula entering a fancy furrier shop. This is a trick that Robert Stevenson has used before. In episode 19, The Derelicts, where we hear the sound of the door buzzer before the lights come up. And in episode 4, Don't Come Back Alive, when we hear the sound of Frank's car before we see him drive up. In that episode, we then see Frank come in through his front door and we hear his wife's voice without seeing her. In the same way, we now see Paula enter the furrier and we hear the furrier's voice without seeing him. The camera follows Paula as she walks farther into the store, and the furrier joins her in the shot. She is wearing a mink stole, and she nervously tells the furrier the reason for her visit. I wanted to find out the value of this stole. Oh, the appraisal. Certainly, madam. May I look at it? Yes, of Thank course. you. It's for insurance purposes. It was a present, so naturally I couldn't ask how much it cost. Yeah, I quite understand. Yeah, this is a very fine piece of fur. Very fine indeed. The furrier, whose name is Leslie Ronalds, blows on the mink when he's assessing its value. I have no idea what that's all about, but it certainly looks impressive. He tells Paula that the stole is worth a great deal more than $1,000. But then he rings a little bell to summon his assistant. Yes, Mr. Ronalds? Oh, um, would you take a look at the stone? This lady's brought it in for an appraisal. You see, we do things very thoroughly. I always like to have a second opinion. Oh? Oh, yes. Yes, Mr. Ronalds. Thank you. The two men excuse themselves and walk into another room. We get a really nice shot of them in the foreground. The room has nice big windows looking out on the showroom. They're about halfway along. Center stage. And then in the background, Paula trying on her stole, admiring herself in a mirror. Her back to us, but we can see her face reflected in the mirror. The assistant is looking through an order book or some sort of book with records. They are now free to speak with Paula in the other room. Well, I made it up last month for Mrs. Wilson. I thought I recognized it. Here it is. One crystal mink stole, $1,800. Mm-hmm. And it was stolen from Mrs. Wilson two weeks ago. This doesn't seem to bode well for Paula. Is she the thief? The assistant doesn't think she looks like one. But Mr. Ronald says... How can you tell these days? Ladies look like the other kind, and the other kind look like ladies. So Mr. Ronalds calls Mrs. Wilson. Something very extraordinary has just happened. Your stole just walked in. Oh, yes, yes, I'm quite sure. After all, I designed it. Yes. Oh, I'm very glad to be of help, Mrs. Wilson. 
Look, will you bring the police around as quickly as you can? I'll try and stall her till you get here. All of this is taking time, and Paula has had enough. She starts to head out of the shop. But Mr. Ronalds catches up with her and lifts the stole right off her shoulders. Then he tries to stall her by telling her that he needs to create an appraisal slip and he needs her name and address and so on. But Paula takes the stole right back out of his hands and exits the shop. Mr. Ronalds tells his assistant to follow her while he waits for Mrs. Wilson and the police. He soon gets a telephoned report from the assistant. Mr. Ronalds, the crystal mink is here at the Claremont, right across the street. And she met a full-length royal pastel. Now they're going into the powder room. She met a full-length royal pastel. I don't know if furriers refer to people by the furs that they are wearing, but I just love that. Now we are going to follow the crystal mink and the full-length royal pastel into the parlor room. But not just yet, because we want to look at the two men who played Mr. Ronalds and his assistant. Anthony Eustrell plays Mr. Ronalds and he was born in London, so that accent is legitimate. IMDb says of him, balding, often mustachioed, though not mustachioed here, British character actor who played bad guys and comic villains in period films and thrillers on both sides of the Atlantic. In films from 1937, he also had a noted career as a Shakespearean actor with the Stratford Memorial Theater in the 1940s. He moved to New York City in 1948 and appeared in several Broadway productions, including a production of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, which ran in 1952. For only three days. He moved to Hollywood shortly thereafter. He can be seen in the episode of The Unexpected entitled Someday They'll Give Us Guns, two episodes of Science Fiction Theater, and two episodes of One Step Beyond. He's in the films Lust for Life, The Ten Commandments, What a Way to Go, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, and The Three Stooges Go Around the World in a Daze. He is in episodes of M Squad, Perry Mason, Get Smart, The Man from Uncle, and Honey West. Just a minute, just a minute. There is something rather familiar about him. Do you recognize him? Oh, not the man, but the style of painting. It's a perfect imitation of Sandy Corbin's technique. It should be. He did it. It's a Corbin original? Oh, well, in that case, I'm prepared to pay you uh, $2,000 on the spot. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, all right. You're too smart for me. $3,000. Uh, Mr. Leopold, he's not for sale, and we are in a big hurry. $3,500, and that's my final offer. Mr. Leopold, you're going to pull his arm off, and we don't want a one-armed bandit. $4,000? Honey West, by the way, was developed for television by Gwen Bagney and her then-husband, Paul Duboff. Anthony also got a lot of roles in which he played a butler. He was a butler in the Kara Williams show. We'll see Kara Williams next time. In the Red Skelton Hour, in Goodbye Charlie, in Banachek, and in an episode of Batman. Yes, what is it, Red? Uh, begging your pardon, sir, but a large crowd have gathered outside the consulate, having heard that the dynamic duo are here. I fear at this moment, time's too precious to spend with our admirers. We must get cracking. Oh, I, I'm afraid they have all entrances covered, sir. To the window, Robin. Cheerio, Sir Sterling. Anthony Eustrell died in 1979 at the age of 76. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Ronald's assistant was played by Paul E. Burns, credited just as Paul Burns here. He was born in Philadelphia as Paul Buns, 
and Metacritic says of him, wizened character actor Paul E. Burns tended to play mousy professional men in contemporary films and unshaven layabouts in period pictures. Bob Hope fans will recall Burns's conbrio performance of boozy desert rat Ebenezer Hawkins in Hope's Son of Paleface, 1952, perhaps his best screen role. The general run of Burns's screen assignments can be summed up by two roles at both ends of his career spectrum. He played Loafer in D.W. Griffith's Abraham Lincoln, 1930, and Bum in Park in Barefoot in the Park, 1967. Actually, IMDb identifies the film in which he is Loafer as John Ford's Young Mr. Lincoln, 1939, and I think that's probably correct. They also list 259 credits for Paul E. Burns, including First Hobo in The Way of All Flesh, Hank in State Fair, Richie the Telegram Delivery Man in a Perry Mason episode, and two episodes of The Adventures of Superman, one of which is one of those unfortunate situations in which a Caucasian actor plays an Asian character. The jade is of gem quality and weighs almost a thousand carats. It has been in my family for more than two centuries. I value it at half a million dollars. But then I didn't ask you here to impress you with my seeming wealth. I have for you what I believe is called in the newspaper profession, a scoop of news. A news scoop? Yes, a news scoop. It is this. As a small token of my appreciation for everything this great country, the United States, has done for me and my people, tomorrow at noon, I leave for Washington to present the Kuan Yin to the National Art Museum. How wonderful. This is a scoop. In our anthology search, IMDb lists Paul E. Burns as being in the Twilight Zone episode Escape Clause, but I can't find him there. And in our Hitchcock search, IMDb lists him as being a farmer in Hitchcock's Saboteur, but I can't find him there either. This is his first of three Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. His next is The Blessington Method, episode 8 of season 5. And Paul E. Burns died in 1967 at the age of 86. Now let's move into the parlor room to join Paula and her friend. We get a shot of them, and then the camera pulls back to show that we're actually seeing them in a mirror. They are admiring themselves and their minks. And Paula's friend lays out the state of fur in 1950s society. Darling, this will do wonders for you. Change your whole personality. <laughs> oh, I felt so sorry for you when you were wearing that little cloth thing. <laughs> no wonder you were mixed up. A good mink does more for a woman than a psychiatrist. <laughs> I think I feel different already. <laughs> of course you do. All my life I've wanted a mink. There's just something about it. <laughs> Makes you feel so special. And wait till you see the way they react to you. The doorman, the head waiter, other women. You make it sound so calculated. You think it isn't? Let me tell you, George has closed more deals just by having me walk into a place where he was having luncheon with a client. But don't stop at a stole, dear. Now start working on your husband for a full-length coat. You may have heard the door open and close during that scene. That's because two other women have entered and have sat down at the vanity tables next to Paula. The timing is perfect as Paula's friend goes to use the facilities. One of the women starts chatting with Paula about her mink, but then she pulls out a badge. I'm Sergeant Bradford, Police Department. 
This lady says you're wearing her stolen fur. Paula's friend returns and then goes out into the restaurant to get their table, freeing Mrs. Wilson up to demand the return of her stole and to try to tear it off of Paula's shoulders, all to the tune that Dana and Laura were listening to on the car radio in episode 34, The Hidden Thing. All right, take off my stole. I'll do nothing of the sort. It's mine. Now, wait a minute, ladies. We're not going to get anywhere if we lose our tempers. What color is your lining, Mrs. Wilson? What? Your lining? Describe it. You think I don't know my own mink? It's gray. Gray file with my initials, JW. All right. I don't have to stand for this sort of thing. Let me see the lining, please. Certainly. It's white. White satin. She must have changed the lining. You still say this is your store? I certainly do. Well, in that case, I'll have to ask you to come to police headquarters. Come along, please. And we jump right to police headquarters, with no explanation given to Paula's friend as to why she's not having lunch with her. Now, before going to the station, let's take a look at the three women who joined Paula in that scene. Because one of them we have seen before, and the other two we will not see again, at least in this episode. Vivi Janice plays Sergeant Bradford, and the last time we saw her, she was the neighbor Maud. In episode 16, You Got to Have Luck. This is her second and last appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Paula's friend was played by Sheila Bromley. Wikipedia says she was born Sheila Legay, but IMDb says she was born Louise Fulton. Some of the confusion may result from the fact that she used a number of different names during the course of her career. She was Sheila Legay, L-A-G-A-E, Sheila Legay, L-E. G-A-Y, Sheila Manners, O-R-S, Sheila Manners, E-R-S, Sheila Manners, M-A-N-O-R-S, before she settled on Sheila Bromley in 1936. She's the daughter of silent film actress Corinne Grant, and she was voted Miss California in 1929. You can find her in Judgment at Nuremberg, five episodes of Perry Mason, two episodes of The Whistler, an episode of The Carol Williams Show. Did I mention that Carol Williams will be seen next time? And the I Love Lucy episode, The Passports. Honey. <laughs> yes? You can't sign this at all. I can't? It says here, Lucy, you were born in 1921. That's right. <laughs> oh, honey, you always were poor in arithmetic. How old are you? 29. <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to have a pretty good memory. You weren't even born until 1927. Oh. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but Helen... Oh, I thought that said 1931. Helen? Yes, dear? I, uh, I don't want to contradict you in front of Sydney, and I don't know how you did it if you were just born 29 years ago, but... You were there when I was born. Lucy, that's impossible. But uh, what about the baby buggy? Who was pushing whom? (laughs) Oh, darling, you know, Lucy was a regular little mother. She used to push me around when... (laughs) Pushing me around when I was just a eensy-weensy little baby in a buggy. She is also the secretary who gets the famous waxing Roth line in the Marx Brothers' Horse Feathers. The Dean is furious. He's waxing Roth. Is Roth out there, too? Tell Roth to wax the Dean for a while. This is the first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents 
and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes for Sheila Bromley. Her next is Graduating Class, episode 14 of, yes, season 5. And Sheila Bromley died in 2003 at the age of 91. Mary Jackson plays Mrs. Wilson. Wikipedia says her nearly 50-year career began in 1950 and was spent almost entirely in television and that she is best known for the role of the lovelorn Emily Baldwin in The Waltons. There was once a young university student. Uh, Your appreciation of the recipe merely confirms our first impression. His name was Ashley. How do you like Walton's Mountain, Mr. Sims? Longworth. Uh, John Boy has been a first-rate guide, but I must say that uh, I have seen nothing that impresses me more than what I see right here. <laughs> Until this moment, Mr. Sims, I thought gallantry had gone out of this world. Yes, with Ashley Longworth. Sister. He was a suitor of mine some years ago. He took liberties, don't you know? And Papa told him to leave and never to come back. Mary Jackson was born in Milford, Michigan, and she attended and graduated from Western Michigan University. During the Depression, she worked for one year as a schoolteacher, but then returned to college, getting a fine arts degree at Michigan State University, and then beginning her performing career. Wikipedia says, always close to her Michigan roots, Jackson was a charter member of the Milford Historical Society. In 1988, Jackson was instrumental in raising money to rebuild the Oak Grove Cemetery Bridge over the Huron River. The Huron River also runs through Ann Arbor, Michigan, a bridge that connects her hometown of Milford to its oldest burial grounds. Mary Jackson herself is buried at the Oak Grove Cemetery. IMDb says film and TV roles did not come her way until well into middle age. Guesting on such TV shows as The Andy Griffith Show, My Three Sons, and Barnaby Jones, she usually appeared as ladylike small-town citizens. She was also part of the ensemble in Peter Bogdanovich's first low-budget film thriller, Targets, which was Boris Karloff's last film. She appears in Airport, Friendly Persuasion, Coming Home, and Big Top Pee-wee, three of which were nominated for Academy Awards as Best Picture. I'll let you guess which three. And for those of us of the anthology bent, she is Miss Pepper in the Twilight Zone episode of Late I Think of Cliffordville, and Mrs. McRae in the Outer Limits episode, I, Robot. Oh, there you are, Mrs. McRae. I thought you'd forgotten about lunch. Then why have I been screaming at you for the last two hours? Oh, was that you? I thought it was a barn owl. You know, you shouldn't bring that all the way out here from the house. I'd starve to death if I didn't. I don't mind the work. Mrs. McRae, just wait till I get Adam here assembled. He'll do all the hard work. You're badly fooling yourself, Dr. Link, if you think that mechanical man will ever move for you. It's against nature. Mary Jackson died in 2005 at the age of 95. This is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Now at police headquarters, Sergeant Delaney joins Sergeant Bradford as they question Paula. Sergeant, I hope you're careful what charges you make. I'm sure you know what can happen if you make a false arrest. I haven't made an arrest, Mrs. Hudson. I just want to know how you got that first all. I've told you. You'd make it a lot simpler for everybody if you'd tell me the truth. Very well. 
I bought the stole myself. You told the furrier that your husband bought it out of town. Well, yes, I, I lied about that. M my husband doesn't know anything about this. I, I wanted to surprise him with what a bargain I got. Do you have a sale slip? Well, no, as a matter of fact, I don't. You see, I bought it secondhand. Well, who did you buy it from? Well, I don't know her name, but well, my hairdresser told me about a girl who wanted to sell a stole. I see. Hadn't we better get in touch with your husband, Mr. Oh, oh, no, please don't do that. He doesn't know anything about it. He's out of town. Where? Henderson. Henderson, Nevada. That's practically Las Vegas. Uh, he go often? Well, to Henderson, yes, not Las Vegas. He's an accountant. He's working on an audit. Where does he stay in Henderson? Well, he, he doesn't stay in Henderson. He, he stays in Las Vegas at a hotel. I thought you said he didn't go to Las Vegas. Well, I, I, I didn't mean that. Was he there last weekend? Yes, why? What's that got to do with it? Well, this fur was stolen at Las Vegas last weekend. Amidst the close-up shots of Sergeant Delaney and Paula, there are mixed in a very nice shot of the two of them sitting down while Sergeant Bradford stands in the background drinking a cup of coffee. She appears, just by her body language and the expressions on her face, to be much more sympathetic to Paula's plight. Now, with Sergeant Delaney implying that Paula's husband stole the stole, Paula agrees to take them to see the woman from whom she bought it. We crossfade to an apartment building in which Paula leads the two detectives to apartment number nine, down at the end of the hall. And the door is answered by a young, attractive, perky, breathy, very pleasant young woman who denies ever seeing Paula before. Yes? You remember me. I'm Mrs. Hudson. Oh, yes. You're the lady that was looking at the apartment across the hall, aren't you? Well, no. I was here last Monday about Just 8 o'clock. I'm a police officer, miss. I'd like to talk to you. I haven't done anything wrong, have I? It's not about that ticket I got. <laughs> no, but uh, may we step inside? Yes, of course. There's a clothesline inside with stockings hanging from it, and the young woman apologizes because she's just been doing her laundry. And she tells Sergeant Delaney that her name is Dolores Dawn, not to be confused with Donna Dew, whom we saw in our last episode, The Legacy. Miss Dawn, this lady says that she bought this first stole from you. Last Monday. Gosh, I don't sell clothes. I model them. I work at Dorsey's. You know Dorsey's? Yes, it's a very good store. I didn't buy it at a store. I bought it here. Here? Well, you must remember, I gave you $400 for it. You said you needed the money. Gosh, if, if I had a fur like that, I'd go hungry before I let it go. So you didn't sell this lady the store, huh? Of course not. And you haven't seen her before? Not as far as I know. Paula insists that she heard about Dolores from her hairdresser, Lucille, who is also Dolores' hairdresser. But Dolores claims she does her own hair. In the end, with Paula getting more and more frantic, it certainly looks like they've come to the wrong apartment. Dolores says that she's probably mixed her up with somebody else because models tend to look alike, which makes no sense because she's not picking a model out of a lineup. She's going to a door where she bought a mink stole no matter who happens to be on the other side of that door. Nevertheless, the police seem to buy this. Gosh, I wish I could help you, but she's just got me mixed up with somebody else, that's all. 
<laughs> you know how it is. An awful lot of us models look alike. Well, sorry to have bothered you. And it's quite all right. <laughs> nice meeting you all. She's right, you know, about models looking alike. You think that's what it is, that you got her mixed up with somebody else? I'm so confused. I I thought she was the one. I thought, thought this was the apartment. Are you sure you wouldn't like to change your story, Mrs. Hudson? No, I wouldn't. All right. The girl at the beauty shop will tell you it's true. I couldn't be mixing her up with someone else. She does my hair all the time. All right, then perhaps we'd better go talk to her. So off they go to see Lucille, the hairstylist, and things don't go any better with her. Oh, honey, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't write down any address. No, you didn't write it down. I did. Oh, well, then that explains it. Mrs. Hudson just made a mistake about who gave her the address. Anybody can make a mistake like that. You know, it's funny you being a policewoman. When you came in, I guessed you wanted a permanent. Don't you remember? It was on Monday. Monday? Were you in Monday? Oh, yes, I did do you Monday. You could do with a permanent, you know. You told me a girl came in here and gave you a hard luck story and asked you to buy a mink stole. On the tips I make? Oh, please, this is serious. You've got to help me. Oh, honey, I know you told me how much you wanted a mink, but I didn't know you'd bought one. Who'd you say you got it from? What are you trying to do to me? Make me think I've gone crazy? Oh, now, honey, don't cry. It's bad for the complexion. Once Sergeant Bradford leads Paula away, Sergeant Delaney lingers back and talks privately with Lucille. What sort of a woman is she? Well, she was always sort of muddle-headed, thinking she made appointments when she didn't, and things like that. But gee, I never thought she'd really flip her lid. Well, thank you very much. Oh, not at all. And tell your partner I'll be happy to give her a permanent any time she wants to drop in. That's very kind of you. This, to me, is the most interesting part of this episode. Here we have our main character, the character with whom I identify, faced with a situation in which everyone denies her point of view, her reality. It's a classic paranoid situation, and it reminds me of the later Twilight Zone episode, Person or Persons Unknown, in which David Gurney is not recognized by his wife or by his co-workers. Wilma! Wilma, will you tell these people who I am? Is that the man? Yes. What's your name, mister? Ask her. She doesn't know. She doesn't know? After 11 years of marriage and she doesn't know? Mrs. Gurney, allow me to introduce myself. I'm David Gurney, your husband, remember? Well, don't stand there staring like idiots. That's who I am, David Gurney. Jim, now please, will you tell him? Look, I've worked with this man for four years. Now tell him! That turns out to be a dream or something supernatural or both. But there are other situations like this with reality-based solutions, some of which are in Hitchcock's own work. There's Iris's search for the missing Miss Froy in The Lady Vanishes. That isn't Miss Froy. Isn't it? No. I say, it's a silly thing to say, but are, are you Miss Froy? No. I am Madame Coomer. Oh, she says she helped you into the carriage after you got the biff on the head and then went to see some friends. The Baroness says that as you spoke about English lady, she didn't connect her with Madame Kummer. But she wasn't the lady I saw. It was Miss Freud. You know, tweeds, blouse, blue silk handkerchief. Yes, I know. Everything's the same, but it doesn't hurt. I beg your pardon. When did you say you first met this Miss Freud? Last night at the hotel. Oh, and was she wearing a costume like this? Yes, I think so. Mm, then I must apologize. You did meet her after all. Then... But not on this train. 
In your subconscious mind, you substituted for the face of Madame Kummer that of Miss Freud. But I didn't. I couldn't have, I tell you. I talked to her here. And there's Roger Thornhill's attempt to prove to the police that he had been force-fed alcohol and put into a car on a winding road in order to kill him in North by Northwest. This is the room. I'll call Madame. You do that. And here's the sofa where they held me down. They spilled bourbon all over it. I'll show you the stains. Well, we must have cleaned them off. Roger, dear, we were so worried about you. Did you get home all right? Of course you did. Let me look at you. Oh, a little pink-eyed, but aren't we all? It was a dull party. You didn't miss a thing. I want you all to know, I never saw this woman before last night. <laughs> Mrs. Townsend, I'm Captain Junkett of the Nassau County Detectives. This is Lieutenant Harding. How do you do? You haven't gotten into trouble, Roger. Now stop Has calling me Roger. into trouble? Mrs. Townsend, Mr. Thornhill was picked up last night driving while under the influence of alcohol and incidentally in a stolen car. Stolen car? Belonging to Mrs. Babson of Twining Road. Roger, you said you were going to call a cab. In each of these situations, our main character has the same reaction, sometimes appalled. Roger was a bit tipsy when he arrived here by cab for dinner. She's lying. And I'm afraid he became even worse as the evening wore on. Finally, he told us he had to go home to sleep it off. Oh, I knew I should have served dinner earlier. What a performance. Sometimes confused. She was lying. I saw it in her face. They're all lying. But why? Why? Or upset. She's lying. I know she's lying. She must be making it up. This is good stuff, particularly here, because while in The Lady Vanishes, we saw Miss Freud before, and in North by Northwest, we saw the bad guys force the booze on Roger and put him in the car. Here, we have to wonder exactly what is going on. Who is telling the truth here? Is there a conspiracy against Paula, or did she in fact get her mink stole from her husband after he stole it in Las Vegas? It would be something to think about. The problem is we get the solution before we can give it much thought at all. In fact, the instant that Sergeant Delaney turns away from Lucille, her cheerful exterior just drops away. And she makes a phone call to Dolores so quickly after the police leave, it's a wonder they don't hear it as they're going out the door. Well, I was waiting for you to call back. I hope you handled them as well as I did. As I was saying, I acted all girlish and innocent. The dear sergeant thinks maybe Mrs. Hudson is crazy. Probably she's beginning to think so herself. Well, the police are not such fools as you seem to think. And I have a hunch we're in trouble. Well, what do you expect me to do about it? Yes, Charlie's here. Charlie, she wants to talk to you. Charlie? How do you think I feel? Yes, Charlie, you're darn right. You better do something about it. And so, unfortunately, our mystery is solved right away. And we also learn that Dolores Dawn is not as all-girlish and innocent as she made out to be. But we do have a new mystery here. Charlie. Who is Charlie? We don't see him. But whoever he is, he'd better do something about it. But before he does, let's say goodbye to Dolores and Lucille and look at the two actors who played them. Dolores was played by Eugenia Paul. She was born Eugenia Popoff in Dearborn, Michigan. 
IMDb says her surname at birth has been variously given as Popoff, P-O-P-O-F-F, Popoff, P-O-P-O-V, Popova, or Popoffin. Eugenia trained as a ballet dancer and was a member of the American Ballet Theater when, on tour, at just age 17, she was signed as a dancer by Warner Brothers. She went on to study acting with Michael Chekhov and to further ballet lessons with Bronislava Nijinska. In 1955, she signed with 20th Century Fox, in which she appeared in the B-Western Apache Warrior as Luana, a chief's daughter, and the B-Zombie film The Disembodied as an African native. IMDb says, unable to shake off typecasting, the parts that came her way for the remainder of the decade were confined to Hispanic or Native American lasses in TV westerns ranging from Death Valley Days and Broken Arrow to The Adventures of Jim Bowie. However, she had been married since 1952 to Robert Strauss, the heir to the Pep Boys auto supply company fortune. And faced with continued typecasting, she quit in 1960 and left the film business, remaining married to Robert Strauss until her death. She's possibly best known for a continued role as Senorita Elena Torres in Walt Disney's Zorro. Don Diego? Elena, is it not? Yes. I hardly recognized you. It seems that we have both changed. I've grown older and you more beautiful. Will you come in? I only have a moment. I came about your father. You, you have heard them. It's terrible. The soldiers were searching here this morning. And mother is so ill from worry, she has taken to her bed. Then my news will encourage you both. Though Nacho is safe, I have seen him and he sends you his love and assurances. Where is he? That I cannot tell you, but he's well. I must tell mother. Thank you, Diego. Our deepest thanks. This is her first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. Her next and last is Alibi Me, episode 7 of not season 5, but season 2. And Eugenia Paul died in 2010 at the age of 75. Vita Ann Borg played Lucille. and She was born in Boston, where she became a model before getting a contract with Paramount. Wikipedia says an item in a 1936 newspaper described her as a former New York and Boston mannequin, and in fact a detail in an article in the World's News of Sydney, Australia, says in 1937 a talent scout saw her modeling in a department store in Boston and signed her to a Paramount contract. From there she moved to Warner Brothers. IMDb says she played at least 15 roles in 1937 to 1938 but in 1939, she was in a severe auto crash. This, again, is from the World News. When champion golfer Ben Hogan was injured in a car accident, they said he would never play again. He did. And now, in Hollywood, the same sort of thrilling comeback is being witnessed. It is almost 12 years since young, attractive Vita Ann Borg, one of Hollywood's best bets for stardom, plunged through the windscreen of her car following a head-on collision. Hovering between life and death for weeks, doctors took one look at her face and shook their head dismally. By no stretch of the imagination could she face the cameras again, unless in a horror affair, they said. But like Hogan, Vita showed rare courage and won her battle. Happily married to film executive Andrew McLaughlin, six-foot son of actor Victor McLaughlin, Miss Borg also has achieved a tranquil, secure, and altogether enviable personal life. Professionally, she has slowly climbed to the prominence she enjoyed before the accident. Apart from her movie work, she is doing exceedingly well in a TV series called The Life of Riley. But all this has taken time, 
After six months, she recovered and was strong enough to undergo plastic surgery. Five operations and two years later, her beauty was nearly restored, but complete recovery took a long time. So then in her career, Vita appeared in Mildred Pierce, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, two episodes of The Unexpected, Guys and Dolls, and in her last role as Blind Nell in The Alamo. And she also played Margot Lane, the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs in the 1940s movie serial of The Shadow. Oh, hello. Hello, Margot. Any messages? Yes, Commissioner Weston phone. He said the shadow caused all that trouble at the telephone plant last night. Well, that solves everything. I'll take it. Hello? Make it sound natural or else. Hello, Mr. Cranston. This is Vincent. Yeah, sure, I'm all right. Can you come and pick me up um, at Norton's Crossroads? I'll explain everything when I see you. Uh, um, and will you bring me a clean shirt? I get you. I'll start right away. That was Vincent. He wants me to meet him, and he said to bring a clean shirt. Oh, he's not worrying about laundry at a time like this. Oh, dear, he's warning me that this is a trap. But you're not walking into a trap alone. Not if you'll come with me. Oh, swell, you know I will. One other tidbit from IMDb. They say before Vita became a model, she hoped to become a cartoonist. This is her only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Vita Ann Borg died of cancer in 1973 at the age of 58. Our scene now shifts to Paula's home, where the two sergeants are taking her statement. After signing the statement, Paula tells the detectives that she would now like to call her husband. I know he'll believe me. There's a phone in our bedroom. I'd rather use that one. Go ahead. A number of years ago, mystery novelist Elmore Leonard spoke at the Ann Arbor District Library, and I recall him saying that he was planning to base all of his books in the 70s and 80s from now on because he wouldn't have to deal with the modern technology of cell phones and the like that make it too easy for people to get in touch with each other. I have no idea if he did that. But certainly this episode takes advantage of the limited long-distance telephone technology of the time to turn that one call into three calls, all of which are made use of. In the first case, with Paula leaving the room, Sergeant Bradford has an opportunity to pick up the mink and try it on, like Paula in two previous scenes, admiring herself in the mirror. This brings about a small conversation about the allure of mink for women. Really is a beautiful piece of fur. Mm. What's mink got for you women anyway? Mm, how would you understand? You've never had a chance to wear one. Neither have I. Maybe if you got that permanent, you would. <laughs> Paula returns and says that the circuits were busy, so she didn't get her call. But then she goes from being meek and scared to very assertive and even a little bit snide. Maybe we're supposed to think that her husband did steal the mink, and she did get in touch with him, and he has given her instructions that have emboldened her. But none of that turns out to be the case. So this transformation is a bit abrupt and a bit odd. Maybe it's just the comfort of her home that is giving her this courage. Is there anything else, Sergeant? Have I completed all the necessary formalities? Yes, thank you. Then why don't you get out of here? Both of you. Very well. We'll be in touch with you. Good night, Mrs. Hudson. Aren't you going to take Exhibit A? 
Well, Mrs. Hudson, you've told us the stole is yours, and at the moment we have no legal evidence to the contrary. So they don't take the stole, and after the detectives leave, we dissolve to a little later in the evening. Paula's doorbell rings, and when she answers it, a man who calls himself Jonas walks right on in. He claims to be the adjuster for the indemnity insurance company, and he has a proposal for Paula. Well, it's like this. Mrs. Wilson stole is insured with us for $2,000, and that's what we'll have to pay unless it's returned to her. What's that to do with me? Well, just this, Mrs. Hudson. As I understand it, you only paid uh, $400 for that stole. Now, rather than take a total loss, we're willing to offer you $600 for it. I'll give you the cash, you give me the fur, and uh, everybody will be satisfied. It isn't a question of money. This is my stole. I paid for it, and I intend to keep it. But you'll be getting a 50% profit, and no questions asked. What do you mean, no questions asked? <laughs> Don't be so defensive, Mrs. Hudson. Lots of people make the mistake of buying bargains that turn out to be stolen goods. If this fur were stolen, Mr. Jonas, it would be a matter for the police, not you. You're wasting your time. The sounds in the background are Paula opening up a closet door and hanging the stole, which up to this point she's had hanging over her arm, onto a hanger and then closing the closet door. She tries to send Mr. Jonas on his way, but he stops and offers a confession. My name isn't Jonas. It's Harper. Charlie Harper, and I'm not with any insurance company. I heisted that fur. I'm a two-time loser already, and I got a wife and kids. If I go up this time, they'll give me 10 years. Then all the time it really was Mrs. Wilson's fur? Yes, my only chance of calling off the heat is to get it back to her. Look, this isn't the only mink stole in the world. I can get you another one, a, a full-length coat if you like, and it won't cost either of us a penny. You mean you'd steal it? Oh, sure. Only this time I'd be more careful. See, my kid was sicker. I needed money. I couldn't wait to mail a stole back east like always. I had a fence it here. Please, you've got to give it back to me. I can't. The police would want to know what happened to it. Tell them you lost it. Tell them anything. You don't realize the position I'm in. The police already have suspect me of having stolen the fur. They're sure to be back to question me tomorrow. If it had suddenly disappeared, well, they'd be certain something was wrong. So this, then, is the mysterious Charlie, and he is played by James McCallion. He was born in either Glasgow or Londonderry, depending on which source you reference. And he began his acting career on Broadway in 1927, opposite Errol Flynn in Yours Truly, when he was nine years old. He had a 50-year career covering Broadway, film, television, and radio. He was a regular on the 30s radio series Gangbusters. His films include Vera Cruz, Tribute to a Bad Man, PT-109, where he portrayed Pappy McMahon, a badly burned sailor rescued by John F. Kennedy, and he's a plaza valet in Hitchcock's North by Northwest. On television, he was probably best known for a starring role in National Velvet, which ran for two years starting in 1960. But he also guest starred on series such as Cannon, Ironside, and The Streets of San Francisco. For the anthology fans out there, he is a reporter in the Twilight Zone pilot episode, Where Is Everybody? Do you consider this a success, sir? Very much so. The man was confined alone in a box for something in the neighborhood of 484 hours. 
That's roughly equivalent to a trip to the moon, several orbits, and return. And this was a simulated trip to the moon, is that right, General? For all intent and purpose, yes. The Outer Limits episode, The Man with the Power. Gentlemen, I'm sorry. I realize how hard you have worked, but Washington has decided to close you down. You'll all be transferred to more practical projects. They can't close us down. Why, this one project would pay for the entire country, for defense costs, for schools, for highways, for the whole federal budget. Well, we could abolish taxes. And the Night Gallery episode, The Diary. Oh, how be with Osma Schaefer? You just sit where you are, Georgie Porgy. The last time you got into the act, I wasn't too crazy about the results. Well, I want to apologize about Miss Crane the night before last, but she said she had this present for you. Yeah. A terrible thing. Terrible. She was a real beauty in her time. Well, that day has long fled the premises, Georgie. So you just remember that the next time you feel your heart melting over some antique has-been, hmm? I don't care if they wheel in a gift-wrapped Rolls Royce. You keep them out of my digs. You read me, Georgie? Yes, ma'am. He is in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Hands of Mr. Ottermole, episode 32 of Yes Again, season two. And James McCallion died in 1991 at the age of 72. All right, so Charlie has given Paula this spiel about having a wife and kids and about how one of his kids was sick, and it all sounds phony to me. I mean, wasn't he just hanging out in Dolores Dawn's apartment? But this is never followed up upon, and we never find out whether it's true or not. And I guess it really doesn't matter. What does matter is that the phone rings. That's probably my husband. Please go. Yes, once again, it's that convenient bad technology of long-distance calling. So as Charlie seems to be heading out the door, Paula goes to answer the phone. It's still not her husband. It's an operator telling her they're still trying to get in touch with her husband. Well, keep trying, please. Now, the camera followed Paula as she went to the telephone. And that sound, in a very nice moment, happens off-screen. As Paula looks over and sees her closet door open and no stole there, the hanger still wobbling back and forth from the force of its seizure. We get a close-up of that wobbling hanger, its shadow wobbling behind it. And we don't need any explanation. We don't need to see it happen to know that Charlie has taken advantage of the phone call to swipe the mink stole. Paula knows it too, and she goes back to the telephone. Operator, give me the police department. Sergeant Delaney, please. Yes, the sound of the doorbell comes that quickly after the phone call as we dissolve to Sergeant Delaney without Sergeant Bradford returning to Paula's house. He has news that he could tell her right away, but he doesn't. He lets her dangle in a way that, in retrospect, seems rather cruel. Good evening, Mrs. Hudson. Sergeant, I I don't know what one does in a case like this, but, well, I've packed a night bag with my things in it. I... If she was my husband out of town, I'd, I don't see how I could arrange bail. Oh, I see. Sergeant, may I ask a favor? My phone call from my husband hasn't come through, but they expect him any time. Could we possibly wait a few minutes? Oh, I think so. Uh, might I wait inside? 
Of course, it's this very cruelty that allows the teleplay writers to elicit some comments from Paula, which may be part of the whole point of the story. I knew you'd never believe me. It, it must have sounded a ridiculous story. What's your husband going to say when he hears about it? I don't know. I, I don't know how I'm going to explain it to him. It, it wasn't just that I wanted a mink stole, but all my friends had one, and... And, and they think if you don't have a mink, your husband isn't doing as well as theirs. We, we were so happy. He was so proud of me, the way I managed. This house is almost paid for, and then... Well, now I've ruined him. That, that's what's so terrible. <laughs> he trusted me, and I've let him down. Well, maybe you'll remember that the next time you're offered a bargain in mink. And now after tormenting her a little bit, Sergeant Delaney comes out with the truth. When you phoned that the fur had been stolen back from you, we guessed what Charlie Harper had planned to do with it, so we were waiting for him at Mrs. Wilson's when he, uh, he tried to dump it. He gave us the whole story about himself, your hairdresser, that young friend of hers, uh, Miss Dawn, and uh, cleared you. Which is great, although it sounds like she's out $400. You mean you're not going to arrest me? No. Yes? And there's that third call, and this time it really is her husband. Mark? Yes, I called you. No, it really wasn't important. I, I just wanted to talk to you. When are you coming home? Yes, darling, we drive home tomorrow night, even if it is late. Yes, dear. Tomorrow night. I'll be waiting. As Paula talks on the phone in the foreground, Sergeant Delaney stands in the background and watches her. When she gets off the phone, he wishes her a good night and heads for the door. It's looking very much like it's going to end there. It's a happy ending. Forgettable, but happy. The kind of television program that you would brush off your shoulder and never think about again. Everything's wonderful. But then Paula hits the sergeant with one more parting shot. How about that apology? What apology, Mrs. Hudson? Well, you believed I stole the fur. Well, as a matter of fact, I never did. Ah, so it just got happier. All's well that ends well. But then there's this. Well, what did you think then? That I bought it knowing it was stolen? That's right, I did. Well, you don't think that now, do you? Well, Mrs. Hudson, only one person knows the answer to that. You. The sergeant gives her a parting smile, and the triumphant music belies the fact that Paula gets a very troubled look on her face as we fade to black. Let's look at our two major players. Vinton Hayworth is Sergeant Delaney, and he was born in Washington, D.C. His father, Alan Hayworth, was a publisher and a printer. His grandfather, Joseph Hayworth, was a Shakespearean actor. Vinton began acting when he was still a teenager, and when he was in his 20s, he became what IMDb calls a pioneering radio announcer, first in Washington, D.C., then in New York City, then in Chicago. From there, he ended up appearing in various radio programs. He was Fred Andrews on The Archie Andrews Show, Philip Roberts on It's Higgins, Sir, Alonzo Smith on Meet Me in St. Louis, and Jack Arnold on Mert and Marge. When he entered movies in the early 30s, he used the stage name Jack Arnold. But by 1937, when he got a starring role in the film China Passage, he billed himself as Vinton Hayworth, H-A-W-O-R-T-H. 
later H-A-Y-W-O-R-T-H. He stopped using the name Jack Arnold in the early 40s and began appearing on television in the 50s. From 1951 to 1954, he was the president of AFRA, which was the American Federation of Radio Artists, later to become AFTRA, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. He was also one of the founders. And in his capacity as both a television and a radio artist, he was the announcer from 1953 to 1954 of the Milton Berle program, The Buick Berle Show. It's The Buick Show! It's the Burl Show! It's the Buick Burl Show! Presented by your Buick dealer! Throughout the 50s, he was in plenty of television programs. He was in the clock episode, Someone Must Die, three episodes of Lights Out, the Tales of Tomorrow episode, Test Flight, the Inner Sanctum episode, The Sisters, three episodes of Perry Mason, and in 13 episodes of Zorro as Magistrado Carlos Galindo. But in the 60s, he mostly played in comedies, Petticoat Junction, That Girl, Green Acres, Batman. My fellow citizens of Gotham City, it is not often a person gets to preside at such an auspicious occasion. Due to the gracious generosity of the Wayne Foundation, we are here today to carry on the work of that fine organization. <laughs> and 20 episodes of I Dream of Jeannie as General Winfield Schaefer. Vinton was also the uncle of Rita Hayworth and the uncle by marriage of Ginger Rogers. According to IMDb, he once said, I used to babysit for Rita out in Woodside. When she was so little, she looked like a Japanese doll. From a baby, she was a magnet for men. Her father used to go with her when she had a date, sitting in the car and waiting for her. He had the duenna idea. A duenna, according to Merriam-Webster, is an elderly woman serving as governess and companion to the younger ladies in a Spanish or a Portuguese family. Of Orson Welles, Vinton said, When Rita was married to Welles, I never met him. We were in an elevator once. He didn't speak. He was lost in the depth of his genius. And on Rita's marriage to Prince Ali Khan, he said, It's curious that when Rita was three, my father wrote a poem, which he called To My Little Princess. He used to tell her that someday Prince would carry her away. He called her Princess Margarita. Maybe Rita doesn't even remember it. But today, her formal name is Princess Margarita. Vinton is in four total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is Malice Domestic, episode 20 of season two. And he also has a tiny role in Hitchcock's Saboteur. As Norman Lloyd's character tries to escape through a movie theater, Vinton is one of the two men in the movie being shown. He's the one that ends up getting shot. Oh, you must go. Go at once before Henry catches you here. Well, see here, I thought you wanted to make the old boy jealous. Not anymore. He's threatened to kill you on sight. Oh, I say, you don't think he'd go that far, do you? Well, of course he will. Oh, will you go before it's too late, before he shoots you to death? <laughs> See here, are you trying to tell me old Henry's got a gun? A real gun? Oh. What do you think this is? I've caught you at last, you rat in the grass. Hey, stop that! Vinton Hayworth died in 1970 at the age of 63 five days before his last episode of I Dream of Jeannie was shown. Our lead here, playing Paula, is, of course, Ruth Hussey. 
And she is one of those actors, like Ralph Meeker, like Marissa Pavan, like Joe Van Fleet, and others we have seen, who had leading roles in films if they were not exactly movie stars, and who are mostly forgotten today. Ruth Hussey was born in Providence, Rhode Island. Her father, George Hussey, died of the Spanish flu in 1918, when Ruth was just seven years old. And ten years later, her mother married William O'Rourke, so for a time she was Ruth O'Rourke. She studied art at Pembroke College and then received a degree in theater at the University of Michigan School of Drama in Ann Arbor, of course, and then worked as an actress with a summer stock company in Michigan for two seasons. After that, she returned to Providence and worked as a fashion commentator on a local radio station. A friend encouraged her to try out for acting roles at the Providence Playhouse, but there the theater director told her that their roles were cast only out of New York City. So Ruth went down to New York City and on her first day signed with a talent agent who booked her for a role in a play starting the next day back at the Providence Playhouse. She also worked for a while in New York City as a model and eventually signed with MGM, making her film debut in 1937. She is in George Cukor's The Women, the 1949 version of The Great Gatsby, and, as Rotten Tomatoes points out in its review of this Hitchcock episode, ironically, she had previously appeared in the 1953 theatrical feature The Lady Wants Mink. She starred as Eliza McArdle Johnson, the wife of President Andrew Johnson, in Tennessee Johnson, and Jenny Souza, John Philip Souza's wife, in Stars and Stripes Forever. What on earth? What the devil's going on out here? Oh, what's what's happening? Happening? Susan, remember me? Private Little. I just dropped by to show you that Souza phone I was telling you about. Listen. Don't do that again. You'll wake up the children. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, it's quite all right, Mr. Little. The children are accustomed to strange noises in this house. I'm Mrs. Sousa. How do you do? I'm fine, ma'am. And I hope I didn't scare anybody. I just wanted Mr. Sousa to hear how good it'll sound in his band. Do you mean to say you came out in all this rain just for that? Well, not altogether, sir. What I really came by for was to see if you could go to a concert with me. To a what? Uh, to a concert, dear. That's right. On a night like this. I always say a concert sounds better if it's raining. Well, there may be something to that. What kind of a concert? Oh, just a concert. Some fellow's going to sing some of your songs. What fellow? Oh, you wouldn't know him, Mr. Sousa, but when I told him I was going to bring you with me, he gave me a couple of passes. The deuce he did. Yes, sir. Right down in front, too. Oh, imagine that, Philip. Right down in front. Well, really, dear, you know you can't afford to miss that. Yes, but how can I go? Didn't you say Professor Esteban was coming over to play Pinochle? Oh, I'll take care of him. You know how absent-minded he is. He won't know whether you're here or not. She's in two episodes of science fiction theater, 100 Years Young and The Unguided Missile, and she stars, along with Ray Milland, in the haunted house film, The Uninvited. Rick. Pamela. We don't want to wake Lizzie. But isn't it Lizzie? No, it isn't Lizzie. It's coming from downstairs. It comes from everywhere and nowhere. Take hold of yourself, Pam. I'm going down and search the place. Rick, I've searched. There's never anything there. Never? Do you mean you've heard it before? Yes. Rick, it's true, isn't it? The sound, I mean. You're hearing it, too. Of course I'm hearing it. You see, I wasn't sure. Pam! I thought I might be going crazy. Was that why you didn't tell me? Yes, that. But it, it's your home. It's all we've got to live in. It sounds so heartbroken. Now, don't get rattled, Pam. There's a logical explanation for this. Such as? Well, you can't expect me to give it to you offhand. It stands to reason. Does it come every night? No. 
just when you begin to think you dreamt it, it comes again. Be calm, Pam. Be calm. I'm all right. It'll stop soon now. How do you know? It dies away at dawn. Listen. That's the dawn breeze. Well, that's all for tonight. By the way, that film also features Donald Crisp, whom you may remember was director of such early silent films as The Princess of New York and Beside the Bonnie Briarbush, films in which Hitchcock served as title designer. But Ruth's best-known role is probably Elizabeth Embry, whom Wikipedia describes as the cynical magazine photographer and almost girlfriend of James Stewart in the Philadelphia story. Well, this Tracy Lord, she know you? You might say Miss Lord and I grew up together. You might also say you were her first husband. Yes, you might. Holy mackerel, what goes on here? I remember your honeymoon very well. You and she on a little sailboat. The true love, wasn't it? That's right. How did you know? I was the only photographer whose camera you didn't smash. You were terribly nice about it. You throw it in the ocean. Oh, one of those, huh? Yes, I had a strange idea our honeymoon was our own business. Incidentally, he paid for all the cameras. I got a nice little letter of apology, too. Ruth was nominated for an Academy Award for that role. And in 1941, movie exhibitors voted her the third most popular new star in Hollywood. Ruth married talent agent and radio producer Robert Longenecker in 1942, and after the births of their three children, one of whom, John Longenecker, is currently a cinematographer and director, she, according to Wikipedia, focused much of her attention on family activities, so her film and TV appearances become scarce, ending in 1973. And appropriately, seen as she was Jimmy Stewart's almost girlfriend in the Philadelphia story, one of her last appearances is on the Jimmy Stewart show in 1972. Her marriage lasted for 60 years until her husband's death in 2002. And Ruth herself died in 2005 from complications from an appendectomy. She was 93 years old. This is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. I mentioned Hitch as title designer in my reference to Donald Crisp and the Uninvited, but in our look at his early career, we've gotten him past that point. In fact, last episode, we looked at Hitchcock's first directing job, number 13, which unfortunately was never finished and is now lost. This time, let's take a look at his next directing job, Always Tell Your Wife, a two-reel comedy where he was co-director and production manager. Here's what Hitch told Francois Truffaut about that. Now that the, uh, uh, the Americans returned, they closed the studio and let it be for rentals. English companies to come in and rent studio space. Et donne à des compagnies britanniques la permission de louer pour l'espace, enfin, les studios pour l'espace. So we were looking to these companies coming in for our jobs. Alors donc pour nos pour pour nos jobs pour travailler, nous nous regardions ces compagnies qui venaient d'arriver. C'était vers eux que nous nous sommes tournés. So I got a job as an assistant director. Alors j'ai pris une position comme assistant metteur en scène. Avec euh, Michael Balcon, non? No, before Balcon. Non, pas encore. Before Balcon. 
There was a, uh, a famous London actor, Seymour Hicks. Seymour Hicks. <coughs> ah oui, c'est ça, je l'ai, Seymour Hicks, oui. And uh, he um, quarreled with the director. Il s'est disputé avec le directeur. And said to me, uh, let's you and I finish this alone. Et m'a dit, pourquoi vous et moi vous ne finirions pas He was a, an actor and a director in the theatre, but he didn't know much. But not much of Always tell your wife. Always tell your wife, yes. And uh, so I helped him. Here's what Patrick McGilligan in Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, says about it. It was while the studio was in limbo that Alfred Hitchcock took his first turn at directing. Always tell your wife was a two-reeler based on a theatrical sketch by the venerable actor-manager Seymour Hicks, a comedy about a philandering husband, his suspicious wife, and a blackmailing mistress. The story had been filmed before in a 1914 production with Hicks in the lead. Now, in January 1923, director Hugh Croyce leased space at Islington to launch a new version, again starring Hicks. When Croyce fell ill, Hicks looked around in desperation. His gaze fell on, quote, a fat youth, who was in charge of the property room, unquote. Today, only one reel of Always Tell Your Wife survives at the British Film Institute in London. Its footage bears the dominant imprint of Hicks, its star, writer, and producer. The camera work is static, the comedy broad. Whether the picture was even completed or released is unclear. Probably not. And here is what Alain Kurzankoff and Charles Barr in Hitchcock Lost and Found, The Forgotten Films, say. Unlike number 13, Always Tell Your Wife survives in part and had some good trade paper coverage in the pages of the weekly motion picture studio. In the issue for 21 October 1922, the columnist Megaphone, in his weekly feature Highlights, notes the plan of the stage actor Sir Seymour Hicks to turn to film work. He has contracted to turn out a dozen two-reelers at the rate of one a month. Ellaline Terrace, his wife, will be his leading lady. Megaphone follows up on 30 December. I was more than usually interested in the news from Hugh Croyce that he is now producing a new series of screen comedies starring Seymour Hicks and Ellaline Terrace. Croyce has made the adaptations of the comedies himself, and at Islington Studios he will have a capable right-hand man as production manager in the person of A. Hitchcock. However, things now begin to go wrong. The next week, Megaphone reports that Hugh Croyce has had bad luck at the outset of his productions featuring Mr. and Mrs. Seymour Hicks. Ellaline Terrace has been seized with illness and work is practically suspended for the next week or so. In the issue of 21 April, the paper's regular humorous column includes, under the cryptic heading of Current Mysteries, Seymour Hicks's first film results, so questions were clearly by now starting to be asked. The same issue notes that Woman to Woman has begun shooting at Islington, that its star Betty Compson is due to arrive from America soon, and that A.J. Hitchcock is responsible for the adaptation and continuity. No more is heard of this or of any subsequent Hicks comedy. Hicks recalled the circumstances in his 1949 autobiography. Halfway through the production, the director was taken ill, and I was at my wit's end to know what to do. Being on the verge of throwing the whole thing up, I was interested when a fat youth who was in charge of the property room at the studio volunteered to help me. It seemed a forlorn hope, 
but as I liked the boy, and as he seemed tremendously enthusiastic and anxious to try his hand at producing, we carried on as co-directors, and the picture was finished. Who do you think that boy was? None other than Alfred Hitchcock. Other sources, including Hitchcock in interview, suggest that the reason for Kreuss's departure was not illness, but a row, and this is borne out by a trenchant item published in the Weekly Entertainment World on 3 March 1923. It comes from a weekly column of film gossip by Penryn Blade. Hugh Croyce had some caustic remarks to make on the subject of West End stars when I ran into him at the Kinema Club yesterday. A few years ago, he said, the stage star regarded the film artist with an attitude of lofty contempt. Then, when they realized the box office receipts at the theaters were falling off and there was money to be made in the studio, they were anxious to get into the game. But the trouble is that they have the same contempt for the film today as they had years ago. They will not take the trouble to learn its special technique, which is quite different from and about ten times more difficult than the stage. They think they know everything and refuse to take any lessons in acting from the producer. The result of this attitude is painfully obvious when the film is seen on the screen. Was the film ever released, and if not, why? Why did the series cease so abruptly? How did the film find its way into the British archives, and why only half of it? Does it include any footage shot by Hitchcock, or is it just Kreuss's work? These are questions still to be resolved. But the half that survives is the first reel of two, and the film may well have been shot in sequence, which would mean that this is Kreuss's material, or at least mainly so, rather than Hitchcock's. Here, from that same book, is a review from the Times of the play. The principal item in the Christmas program at the Coliseum is Always Tell Your Wife, a new one-act play by Mr. E. Temple Thurston. In this, Mr. Seymour Hicks plays a young husband, who, in order to be finally free of a premarital entanglement, is intending to give the lady dinner at a restaurant where he and his solicitor are to see the matter through together. In order to conceal his doings from his young wife, Miss Ellaline Terrace, he feigns a severe cold and goes to bed, putting on his pajamas over his dress clothes until his wife shall have left the house. Thanks to the telephone, however, which plays a very large part in the play, the wife gets wind of the engagement and the secret of the supposed cold, and on the advice of a friend conveyed by telephone, proceeds to soak or punish her husband with all manner of tortures, mustard baths, mustard leaves, inhalers, thermometer, and whatnot until the time comes for her to end the joke by revealing, on the telephone, that she knew all along his cold to be a sham. There is any quantity of farcical fun in the play, and the pair romp through it in their well-known vivacious and vigorous style. So, as mentioned, the first reel of the film survives at the British Film Institute, but it doesn't appear to be available. And if you check online, look up Always Tell Your Wife, one of the choices you get is a YouTube clip entitled Watch Your Wife from 1923. It is also a broad comedy, looks like it's just one reel of the broad comedy, and I watched it, and it's rather fun, but it's not always tell your wife. Curzon Cuff and Barr finish with, There is no evidence that the film was ever submitted to the censor, given a trade show, or exhibited to the public, but Hitchcock is unlikely to have taken a close interest in its eventual fate, since he was soon involved in scripting a far more ambitious Islington production, Woman to Woman, for Michael Balkin. We'll take a look at Woman to Woman next time. Anytime you stick your toe in an artistic stream from several generations ago, you run the risk of encountering stereotypes that no longer resonate. This episode is rife with them. There are the women, including Sergeant Bradford, gushing over the feel of wearing a mink. Really is a beautiful piece of fur. There's Sergeant Delaney's question of what it is about mink that attracts women. What's mink got for you women anyway? And his smug response to Sergeant Bradford about a permanent. How would you understand? You've never had a chance to wear one. Neither have I. 
Maybe if you got that permanent, you would. And his withholding of the good news and patronizing response to Paula, who was silly enough to think she could get a mink for $400. Well, maybe you'll remember that the next time you're offered a bargain in mink. There are even things outside the confines of the episode, like Hitchcock's wife-beating comment coming up in his outro, which is intended to be funny and just isn't. Or that the teleplay is credited to Erwin Gielgud and Gwen Bagney in that order, even though, from what I understand, Gwen was the guiding force of their team. But since the main writer, Gwen, is a woman, there's also an undercurrent of something interesting here, a view of what women have to deal with in this male-oriented society. We get a glimpse of it when Paula's friend talks about how her mink helps her husband with his business. Let me tell you, George has closed more deals just by having me walk into a place where he was having lunch with a client. But don't stop at a stove, dear. Now start working on your husband for a full-length coat. And we dive right into it when Paula opens up to Sergeant Delaney about why she wanted a mink. It isn't a matter of money, as she tells Charlie. It isn't a question of money. This is my stole. I paid for it and I intend to keep it. It's not even a matter of status, really. It's that people think if you don't have a mink, then your husband isn't doing as well. It, it wasn't just that I wanted a mink stole, but all my friends had one and... And, and they think if you don't have a mink, your husband isn't doing as well as theirs. We, we were so happy. He was so proud of me, the way I managed. This house is almost paid for, and then... Well, now I've ruined him. That, that's what's so terrible. The house is almost paid for. They're living a good life. But there is that societal pressure, and Paula is living at a time when most women are not in the workforce. So how can she help her husband? Well, in the same way that her friend helps her husband. So the mink can be an asset in this society. But what do you do if you don't have the mink? Well, you can act all innocent and breathy and girlish. Acted all girlish and innocent. The dear sergeant thinks maybe Mrs. Hudson is crazy. Or you can tout a permanent, perhaps the poor woman's version of a mink. You could do with a permanent, you know. Something that Bradford dismisses but that Delaney seems to find charming. And tell your partner I'll be happy to give her a permanent any time she wants to drop in. That's very kind of you. So much so that he mentions it again, albeit a bit sarcastically. These two women, Dolores and Lucille, have their own struggles in this man's world. Any mink Dolores may wear in her modeling career is quickly taken off her shoulders. I never had mink on my back except once at a fashion show. He took it right off me the minute I finished the walk around. Lucille doesn't make much in the way of tips. On the tips I make? These are single women surviving as best they can in traditional women's roles. And these ruts they are stuck in lead them to some extra legal activity. Note, though, that in their racket, they are still subservient to Charlie, a man. As we near the end, it looks like this is a morality tale of a silly woman so obsessed with wanting a mink that she doesn't consider how she could have gotten one so cheaply until that last 10 seconds, with the comment by Delaney and that look on Paula's face. Well, Mrs. Hudson, only one person knows the answer to that. You. That troubled look that says, maybe you're right. Maybe I did know deep down inside that a $400 mink was too good to be true. Maybe I just fooled myself into thinking it could be legitimate. Maybe society has narrowed my options so much that, like Dolores and Lucille, I'm willing to skirt the law, where honest Sergeant Bradford, without a mink or a permanent, can only wish he had the means to get out of Sergeant Delaney's shadow. 
may be unlike Dolores and Lucille, I'm only now realizing what I'm willing to do to get ahead. And maybe it's society itself that has forced me to make that decision. And that's a pretty bold statement for a half-hour television show from back in 1956. And now on to Hitch's outro, which is seamless on the DVD. So I suspect it's another example of the recording for the European audience. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom has a little additional part that leads us to commercial. So as usual, I'll let Hitch do most of the talking, and I'll read that part. He's still behind those bars, but as he speaks, he just walks around the bars and comes out in front. It turns out, not surprisingly, it's just a stage set and not a jail at all. So much for the case of the stolen stone. I think I'll give up my diet. Exercise, that's it. I think I'll take up sports again. I'm quite an athlete, you know. I particularly excel in chess, falconry, wife beating, that sort of thing. And now we pause a moment for sponsor identification, after which I'll be back. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1. The Uninvited, The Philadelphia Story, Batman, The Second Season, Part 1, The Marx Brothers' Silver Screen Collection, including Horse Feathers, The Adventures of Superman, The Complete First Season, The Outer Limits, Season 1, The Twilight Zone, Seasons 1, 3, and 4, The Lady Vanishes, North by Northwest, Saboteur, I Love Lucy, The Complete Fifth Season, and The Waltons, The Complete Fourth Season, are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The opening to the Buick Burl program, the Zorro episode, the Shadow movie serial, Stars and Stripes Forever, and the Hitchcock Truffaut conversations are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org, and please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject heading. Next time, episode 37, Decoy, starring Robert Horton and Carol Williams. Thank you for coming. Please call again. Our next visiting hours will be just one week from tonight. Good night.